morning, everybody. <clears throat> Thanks for being here. My name's Pastor Dan Ledwith. I'm a friend of JP's. I've been for a long time. Uh, I've been, it is a, it's always humbling when uh, a pastor invites you to come in to their pulpit. It is a good sign when you get invited back a second time. And it's a really great sign when you get invited back a third time. That's today. So I'm really happy. You know, that's good. But I, I need to be straight up with you right now. Uh, I want to be really honest. I want to be really blunt here. Let me uh, make sure that this works. All right. This is not a puff piece this morning. I'm giving you meat today. Now, maybe th that's not what you want this morning. If you, if you want some nice, happy kumbaya sermon, I can throw this out and we can go do something really nice and happy. But having been here three times, I think you guys can take something serious. Am I right? Yes. You want something serious? You want the real deal? Yes? Yes. yes. All right, good. All right. I, I'm always nervous. I mean, if, what happens if they say no? You know, I have to throw everything out. Okay, but there's going to be pictures. So even though it's a hard message, at least you're going to see some nice pictures. Okay? I'm going to tell you a story or a message about three women. A sinful woman who crashed a private party to meet Jesus. Rachel a Christian woman who got lost in the church. And I'm going to tell you about Michelle, who is broken right now outside the church. Now, we don't know the name of the first woman. She's simply described as the woman who was leading a sinful life in the text that we just read in Luke 7, 36 to 50. And the events of that chapter are really poignant, aren't they? They're really challenging. They really showcase Jesus' grace. In other words, as we pastors are wont to say, that passage preaches. And if you go to a book or a commentary or you listen to a sermon to kind of dig into it, and you'll find that the typical lessons that are drawn from it are things like, Jesus forgives anybody who comes to him. The importance of repentance. That in forgiving, Jesus was claiming to be God. That whoever is forgiven much loves much. We compare and contrast the attitudes towards Jesus of the Pharisee with those of the prostitute. Are you more like the prostitute or are you more like the Pharisee? All worthwhile things to consider. Yet I submit that there is a much more profound question to be asking here. What if... We were put in Jesus' place in this passage. Would we respond the same way to both the woman and the Pharisee? Would we, like the Pharisee, see a sinner who is to be shunned, or like Jesus, see a woman who needed forgiven? Would she be drawn to God because of our life, because of our walk, because of our conversation? Would the Pharisee wonder if we were actually a good Christian for letting that woman recline at our feet? A little over three years ago, I read this book called The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. As you might expect, the book focuses on the parable of the lost son in Luke chapter 15. 
And after exegetically going through that parable, he closes out the first uh, chapter of his book with these words. He says, the crucial point here is that in general, religiously observant people were offended by Jesus, but those estranged from religious and moral observance were intrigued and attracted to him. We see this throughout the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life. In every case where Jesus meets a religious person and a sexual outcast, as in Luke 7, the passage we just read, or a religious person and a racial outcast, as in John 3 and 4, or a religious person and a political outcast, as in Luke 19, the outcast is the one who connects with Jesus and the elder brother type does not. Jesus says to the respectable religious leaders, the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes enter the kingdom before you. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. That's tough stuff. The point of our text is that the Pharisee should have been happy to see this woman coming back to God, but instead he was indignant. We should be living in such a way as to make Christ attractive to the broken and the lost and the outcast. But too often, the opposite is true. Has this not been going at all? All right, okay, so there's the point, there's the lesson, we went over that, yes, yes. Too often, this is where we're at. Too often the opposite is true. We think about how it would make us look, don't we? We worry about our image, we worry about the cost, we worry about the time, the effort, the resources it's going to take. We don't want to deal with the headaches, we don't want to deal with the heartaches, we don't want to get involved with other people's pain. We fear walking into that pain, don't we? We fear walking into that loss, that brokenness, the sin of such people, the struggle of such people. Yet that is what Jesus did again and again and again. If we want our lives to mirror Jesus, we need to do the things that Jesus did. We need to say the things that Jesus said. And that means living in such a way that the broken and the lost and the outcast are attracted to Jesus. Amen? Now, we've talked about one woman's story. Now I'm going to tell you uh, about two others by way of illustration and application. One who got lost in the church and one who's currently lost outside the church. Now, both of these women are personal friends of mine. They both know I'm giving this message today. 
They both have given me permission to share their stories. So no letters, please, okay? <laughs> they know what's going on, all right? The second woman I want to tell you about is Rachel, who got lost in the church. Years ago, I taught at a private Christian school in central New Jersey, and Rachel here was one of my students. She was a junior when I showed up at the school. And as I learned about her, you know, I found out that years before, she'd been really into goth, that whole dark, nasty business, you know, the black, you know, black and white makeup, the dark leather, blood, the whole thing. She was really into that. And in eighth grade, she had this incredible conversion experience and totally turned her life around, gave up the goth, accepted Jesus. And she was like, had become the poster child of what Jesus can do to a lost, broken person, right? And so when I got her, she was, the, she was the class president when I showed up at school. She sang in the choir. She was on my student prayer team. Everybody loved her. She was awesome. And then one day, she didn't show up to school. One day became two, then three, then a week, then two weeks. No one seemed to know why. And then one day we were told that there was going to be a mandatory faculty meeting to discuss what was going on in the life of one of our students. We all assumed it was going to be Rachel. And we were, at the end of the day, led into the library. And there was a square of tables that was set up for us. And when we all got in there, they turned around, the headmaster turned around, and he locked the doors to the library. He pulled the blinds to the windows. He sat down and opened his Bible. I thought to myself, oh my gosh, he's going to tell me that Rachel is dead. But this is what he said. He said, many of you know that Rachel has not been in school lately. She's not been in school because the slide won't be good. Because she's pregnant. And I remember breathing an audible sigh of relief. Oh my gosh, she's just pregnant. That's so much better than dead. This is awesome, I can adjust. Thank you, Jesus. You know? The headmaster continued, I've spoken with her parents. She is repentant. <clears throat> she knows what she did was wrong. However, since it is clearly stated in our student handbook that student pregnancy is grounds for automatic expulsion, her parents have informed me that she has opted to withdraw instead of being expelled. I'll never forget the response of that faculty. What? What was she thinking? How could she do that? She's ruined her life now. She had so much potential and she just threw it all away. Didn't she realize, didn't she think didn't she reflect on what this was going to do to her father and his ministry? He was a pastor. Didn't she think about how this was going to reflect on us, on our school, on our reputation? Didn't she think about how this was going to look with Jesus? They were mad. They were shocked. They were indignant. As we started to go around the table... Praying, one of the teachers said, Dear God, Rachel really screwed up. But you can forgive. 
I almost lost it. Can, but God might maybe forgive this repentant Christian who has asked for forgiveness already? What do you mean? This is not some future thing. I took my turn to pray next. I said, God, I'm glad that when Jesus died for Rachel on the cross, he knew about this and he paid for it and he forgave her for it 2,000 years ago. Help us to care for her and to communicate your love and grace and compassion to her in this really difficult time. Right after that meeting, I went to her house. I sat with her and her parents. I asked her why she didn't go to her dad or to her boyfriend's dad, who also was a pastor. <laughs> or to her youth pastor, or to me. If they were struggling with this stuff, why didn't you come? Why didn't you ask for help? This is what she said. She said, Mr. Ledwith, I have felt under so much pressure to live up to everyone's expectations for so long, I just decided that I couldn't. We were afraid to talk about what we were feeling to anyone because we were afraid of what people would say. That was a great indictment against us. That should never, ever be true of any Christian church or ministry. The safest place on earth to tell your sins to should be the church, and the safest people to do it with should be Christians. I'm sad to say that no other person went to visit her that day from that school or any other day. No students, no other staff, nobody came to see her. Rachel, though, and her boyfriend, Nick, got married. They started Shores of Grace Ministries after going to school to become missionaries, and they're currently serving in Recife, Brazil, ministering to the prostitutes and the abused and the poor and sex trafficking people down there. They have an incredible ministry. Her life isn't ruined. Her sin didn't wreck her life. God's grace redeemed that and made her life. She's a great woman. She's a great Christian, a great mother and wife and friend. And we're still in touch. I got to spend a few days with them this past summer. How would you have reacted? What would you have done in that meeting? More importantly, what would you have done after that meeting? Would you incarnate the spirit of Jesus? Or channel the ghost of Simon the Pharisee? third person I want to talk to you about is my friend Michelle, who's broken outside the church. As an author, one of the things that uh, publishers tell you to do, we need to do in order to become successful, is we need to build an audience. We need to build a readership. And some of you know, so I know some of you have bought my, my book, um, Rest in the Shadow of the Almighty, and uh, Special Graces and Commonplaces, and I thank you for that. My kids, thank you for that. They're still available. <laughs> Help a guy out. You know, my kids got to eat. Um, but one of the things they tell you to do to help do that is to start maybe a blog. So I started a blog on, on WordPress. And 
as I was getting as as I was getting into that, one of the things I began learning early on was that you have no idea who's going to read your stuff or what they're going to say about it. <laughs> it's like you're putting it out there, and anybody can say anything that they want. And I quickly began learning that some people who liked or commented on my posts were planted by the enemy to tempt me to go to bad sites. And one day, a little over three years ago, I got an email saying that I had a new comment from somebody named Michelle Stiles. I didn't know any Michelle Stiles. And these emails also include a picture of the person who's making the comment, if they were a WordPress blogger. Her picture was of a sultry 20-something young woman. And I looked at that, and that made me nervous. And her comment was in response to a post of mine titled, What Angers God is Sin, which was based off of Proverbs 6.19. I'll read that to you real quick. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. That's the important part. A heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. This was her comment back to me. Your God would hate me then. My hands shed my blood on many occasions. Long story, but I struggle with a horrible past. My release is blood and pain. I do not see God as hateful. He's too pure for such a thought. What to do? Should I respond? Should I let it alone? But I had just finished reading Keller's book. And his words haunted me. I decided to respond. Michelle, thanks for taking time to share your comment. You shared a lot of yourself in just four sentences. My God would surprise you. Your past and struggle with it cannot keep him from loving you. I would love to walk with you more if you feel like, if you feel like it. Feel free to email me. And to my surprise, she did. Michelle is the youngest of seven. And she was born deaf. One day, walking home from school, she was grabbed by five men. thrown into a van. And in that van, in a nearby building, those men took her to, they viciously assaulted her. And when they were done with her, because they thought she was dead, they threw her into a construction pit like a bag of trash. By God's grace, a patrolman driving by for some reason stopped at the pit, got out of his car, looked into the pit, and saw her lying there and got her help. If he had not stopped, if he had not gotten out of the car, if he had not looked into the pit, she would have died that night. To add insult to injury, she soon found that she was pregnant as a result of the attack. She was 14. Michelle's mother is a Christian. Michelle is not. Neither is her father. But her family went to church in support of her mother. 
And of course, they looked to their pastor and to their church family for help. They were asking the obvious questions, the questions we all would be asking. Why did that happen? Where was God? What, wasn't he looking? Does he even care? To me, those are very understandable questions after an event like that. They got answers like these. Just give it all to God. Everything's going to be okay. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Just trust him. He'll bring something glorious out of this. All things work for the good of those who love him. Now let me tell you something. I think there's a lot of truth in those things. Some of those things are scripture. I believe they're true. But you know, they proved shallow comfort for her. They seemed, the way they were spoken, that they were more about keeping her and her pain at arm's length than really incarnating and showing her Jesus' love. And as time went on, she continued to struggle more and more. There was depression. There was anxiety, nightmares, self-harm, a suicide attempt. And as her pain continued, the church's patience began to wane. They told her and her parents, when is she going to let this go? It's time to move on. It's over. Get over it. They quoted Exodus 20, verse 5, to her dad. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You know why she got raped? You know why she's having a hard time? Because you have not yet accepted Christ. They told Michelle that God was punishing her for not being a Christian. That was enough. Michelle left and she didn't look back for about 10 years. Then she began to think about God and her faith again. Her girlfriend, Sarah, took her to her home church, excited that Michelle might finally find the love that she needed. And things were okay until the church realized that Michelle and Sarah were more than just friends. When they discovered that they were lovers, they told them in no uncertain terms to walk out that door and don't ever come back. That's been her experience with the vast majority of Christians that she's met. Unfriendly, unwelcoming, impatient, repulsed by her. Friends, if we're reviled, if people don't like us because they don't like Jesus, they reject Jesus, they reject the gospel message, so be it. Jesus was rejected for the same reason. He told us to expect the same. I'm totally okay with that. But if we are rejected, if we're reviled because we are rude and we are mean and we are ungracious to people like Michelle, we should have a real problem with that. Her story broke my heart. And I wept as I read it. I wrote back saying, what you were made to endure is, to my mind, the worst that a human being can suffer. I don't pretend to know the breadth and the depth of the pain and shame that you've been left bearing for the past 15 years. What happened to you was unspeakable. 
it was evil if through prayer or encouragement or conversation or in any other way, I can come alongside you and walk through this valley with you, I will. Again, quite to my surprise, she took me up on that. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into at the time. It's been quite a ride going with her over the last three years, including a second suicide attempt. But I have seen some amazing things God do. Today, right now, is day 968 since she has done any kind of self-harm. For the first time in her life, in half of her life, she's been rising out of her depression and she's been learning that she's lovable and that she's able to love. Her recurring nightmares reliving that horrible event have completely stopped. She's forgiven the men who attacked her. She's convinced that God divinely intervened and kept her from dying that night she was attacked and kept her alive during her two suicide attempts and that he is and she's actively working through what that means. All this started after myself and a couple other Christians decided to walk with her no matter what. You think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. I think our tenaciously gracious God is out to get his daughter back. The woman living the sinful life was attracted to Jesus he welcomed her. While religious and moral people like Simon wanted to keep their distance from her, Jesus welcomed her, defended her, and forgave her. He gave her grace. We need to do the same. Rachel's story teaches us that Christians sometimes get lost. Sometimes they get lost really bad. But even though she was lost, Jesus never lost her. He continued to show her grace. We need to do the same. Michelle's story teaches us that Jesus pursues broken people even when they're not pursuing him. We need to do the same. If we don't live in such a way as to make Jesus attractive to the broken and the lost and the outcast, we're missing the goal. We're missing the point of Jesus' kingdom. He laid it out in Luke 4.18 when he said this. He's quoting Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. My friends, Michelle, Rachel, and others can walk through any of those doors any given Sunday. I'm willing to bet that there's some in here right now. They can walk into your life any hour of the day. And I'm willing to bet a lot of you know who that person is. Will they find brothers and sisters looking for them, running to them to meet them, 
Will they find the incarnated love and grace and forgiveness that Jesus offered the woman in our text? Or will they find the incarnated indignance of Simon the Pharisee? I trust they'll find the former.